Good. I wonder if like those churches uh, back east and when there's actual snow, if the church is empty on Sundays, like <laughs> people can't brave the rain here in California. Anyway, uh, today we continue our series through chapters one and two of Luke's gospel. There we find the most comprehensive uh, look at the Christmas story. Now, I want to begin by reminding us of Luke's purpose for writing his gospel. He addresses it to a, a Roman Gentile, probably a nobleman named Theophilus. And his purpose is that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke writes to reinforce, uh, to provide certainty for what, let me call him Theo, has learned. We want him to have, he wants him to have this confidence, confidence of putting his faith in Jesus in a reasonable and right way, that, 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 that faith in Christ is reasonable, it's the right thing to do. And to provide that confidence, he writes an orderly account of Jesus' life. And as we've seen, he begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. These miraculous births, uh, humanly impossible births. Both announcements were made by the angel Gabriel, but they were received differently, if you remember. When Gabriel came to Zechariah, John's father, and told him that his old barren wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a son, he, re he responded with unbelief. And when Gabriel came to Mary, Jesus' mother, and told her that she, a virgin, was going to have a son, she responded first with a humble request for an explanation. Verse 34 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. How will this be? Well, Mary, the Holy Spirit will do a work to bring about this child's conception. And because of that, the child will be divine. He will be called Holy, the Son of God. Then Gabriel added the confirmation that nothing is impossible with God by telling Mary that her relative Elizabeth, who was old and barren, was also pregnant. And finally, we have Mary's faith-filled response to Gabriel. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm God's servant. How can I argue with him? Let it, let it be. So we've seen Mary's initial faith-filled response to God's work in and through her life. And Luke wants Theophilus to follow Mary's example of faith. To be certain, to trust, to have faith that what he's been taught about Jesus is true. And in our passage for today, which Christina has read, Luke keeps the spotlight on Mary. As she, along with her relative Elizabeth, provide Theophilus and us examples to follow. So now we turn to Mary's spirit, and I would add joy-filled, spirit and joy-filled visit. Remember, Gabriel confirmed God's miraculous power by telling Mary of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And probably because she herself 
is now miraculously pregnant and needs someone to understand and support her, uh, she decides to visit Elizabeth. In verse 39, we read, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you remember, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, the Gabriel told Zechariah that his son, who would be named John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John will be uh, somewhat unique. The Spirit of God will dwell within him from the time he's in his mother's womb until the, he completes his ministry as a grown man. And here in verse 41, we have evidence of a Spirit-filled baby in the womb. As Mary approaches, carrying the Son of God in her womb, little unborn John leaps. I imagine Elizabeth, for Elizabeth, it felt like a good kick in the diaphragm, right? But she, too, was filled with the Spirit and understood it was more than this normal baby kicking. In verse 44, she says to Mary, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. As the Spirit-filled baby John senses the Son of God, he expresses his joy in the only way he can, by leaping. Clearly, there's something special about both John and, to a greater extent, Jesus. And I think there's a lesson here for us as well. The Bible teaches that those who trust in Christ are given, uh, are sealed with, and can be filled with this same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that filled John and that filled Elizabeth. And that the fruit of the Spirit includes uh, joy. So I think it follows that when we're in relationship with Jesus Christ, when Jesus is near and dear to us, like John from the womb, we too should experience leap-causing joy. Not that we're jumping for joy 24-7, but joy in the Lord becomes a natural part of who we are. It's part of our nature. As Christians, we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. In fact, Paul gives the church in Philippi this command, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful in the Lord, in your relationship with God, in what He's done for you, and what He continues to do for you. Therefore, if you struggle to experience the joy of the Lord, and it's an actual joy, by the way. You know, some people think uh, joy in the Lord is like very serious. No, it's, it's joy. There's happiness, you know. Joy in the Lord. I'd call upon you. To draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus through His Word, through times of prayer, asking Him to fill you with His Spirit. To be being filled, as Paul says to the Ephesians, with the Spirit. To give you the fruit of joy in the Lord. So unborn John and his mother Elizabeth are both filled with the Spirit. And it seems that they are both experiencing joy. In verse 42 we read, And she, Elizabeth, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Basically, Elizabeth, in the power of the Spirit, proclaims that in a unique way, the hand of God's blessing is upon both Mary and her unborn child. She says that Mary is blessed among women. As Gabriel said before, Mary is the favored one. 
the one who's received the grace, the blessing of God, she has been uniquely chosen for this amazing responsibility. She alone will give birth to, and with Joseph's help, raise the divine Son of God. Now as I said, or did I say, but it's kind of clear from the reading, the focus today will be on uh, Mary, right? She, like Daniel, we just studied, and others in the Bible are held up as examples for us to follow. But we need to be careful, especially with the church's history with Mary, not to give her undue praise as someone who's morally unique. That is, someone who's above, better, morally higher, unique, more than human, if you will. Don't get me wrong. As we've seen and will continue to see, she is a godly woman, an example to follow. And she's certainly unique in that no one else bore the Son of God. But the Roman Catholic doctrines of her sinless life, her perpetual virginity, her bodily assumption into heaven have have no basis in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus in Luke's gospel provides us with specific warnings against excessive praise of Mary. Let's just look at one. Luke 11, 27 through 28, we read, "As, As he, Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This sounds a little bit similar to what Elizabeth said, right? The woman is not wrong. As we've seen, Mary was uniquely blessed by God. But in verse 28, we read Jesus' response. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So yes, Mary is blessed among women. But that doesn't mean she's to be focused on as an object of adoration. Instead, we should learn from her example of faith and obedience and focus on hearing and keeping the Word of God. Jesus makes it very clear, Mary should not be lifted up in a moral class by herself as something more than human. Okay? Back to Mary's spirit-filled, joy-filled visit. Elizabeth continues. She says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greetings came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Again, the Spirit is clearly at work here, for he reveals to Elizabeth the amazing truth of who Mary's unborn son is. Notice she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. And who's Elizabeth's Lord? The God of the Old Testament. Yahweh himself. By the power of the Spirit, Elizabeth miraculously understands that the baby Mary carries is the Lord God Almighty. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Mary, Did You Know? Anybody else like that one? Okay. The final stanza goes like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? I would sing it, but I don't want anybody to leave. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding, my favorite part, is the great I am. Well, if Mary was paying attention to Gabriel and Elizabeth, she knew that the child she was carrying and would hold and would raise was the holy son of God. 
the Lord of all creation, the great I am. And how did Elizabeth know this? She was filled with the Spirit. Just a word about the revealing work of the Spirit in our lives. You might, as I've sometimes wondered, why do some people, including myself and hopefully most of you, see clearly that God exists, that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, while others who've heard the same truths we have don't see, don't believe. Well, as we clearly see in Elizabeth, it's the Spirit who reveals these things. It's not our own intellects, our ability to understand. It's the Spirit revealing to those who chooses, uh, that He chooses the true nature of God. So even our faith, our belief, comes by God's grace and His mercy. Okay, back to Elizabeth. She also pays tribute to Mary's faith. Blessed is she who believed. And as we pointed out before, uh, this stands in stark contrast to the doubt Elizabeth's silent, still silent husband. At this point, Zachariah still can't speak. He's been struck dumb. Uh, so there's the, she contrasts. Elizabeth's going... I wish my husband would have believed because I'm, I need somebody to talk to. No, I don't know. But, but Mary's faith, her, her willingness to believe is, is held up there. And again, this whole passage points to the truth that God is uniquely and sovereignly at work. He is miraculously at work in the lives of Mary and Elizabeth to bring forth two sons. One would be the forerunner, the prophet of the Lord. And one would be the Lord of all creation, the holy, divine Son of God, the Savior of the world, the great I Am. And as Mary takes all this in, the words of Gabriel, the confirming words of Elizabeth, she sees clearly a most remarkable thing about God. Not only is He about to change the course of human history, but He's going to use two obscure, humble women, one old and barren, one young and a virgin. Mary and Elizabeth are wonderful heroines in Luke's account here. It seems he loves the faith of these women. And the thing that impresses him most, it appears, and the thing he wants to impress on Theophilus and us to see is the lowliness and joy-filled humility and faith of both women. Remember in verse 38, Mary respond, Mary's response to Gabriel, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be me. Let it be to me according to your word. And in verse 43, Elizabeth says, And why is this granted to me? Who am I that this should happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Both women are clearly humbled by the fact that God will use them for His great and mighty purposes. In fact, Mary is so moved by a God who loves and uses the lowly that she breaks out in song. I don't know if she sang it or hummed it. I don't know how it worked. A song that has been, has, has, has been come to be known as the Magnificent, which is simply Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord, which is how Mary's song of praise begins. So now we tra transition from Mary's spirit-filled, joy-filled visit, which leads to her song of praise. In verse 46, we read, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. What follows seems to be a spontaneous outpouring from Mary, from deep in her soul. That word magnifies is the Greek megalino, 
and it means to make or declare to be great. Put simply, what follows is Mary's declaration of God's greatness. This song is meant to glorify God. And we're going to look at the different parts of, of it shortly. But first, I want us to notice something in general about Mary's words. To see they, what they reveal about her and what they say to us. And to do that, we need to look at another similar song of praise found in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of Samuel and his mother? Hannah. Hey, I like it. Hannah. Hannah, like Elizabeth, was barren. And because of, what she, uh, because of that, she was abused uh, by other women. She was tormented because she couldn't have children. She prayed earnestly that the Lord would give her a son, and God answered her prayers with Samuel. Hannah's son Samuel was the final judge of Israel before the time of the kings. He anointed both Saul and David, first two kings of Israel. But before any of that took place, his mother Hannah prayed. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're given her prayer of praise, which is very similar to Mary's song. Let me read the beginning of Hannah's prayer, verses 1 through 5. And Hannah prayed, prayed, she didn't prayed, she prayed, and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you, like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. Now, if you remember Mary's song of praise, which Christina read, notice the similarity. For example, in verse 1, Hannah says, My heart exalts the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. And in verses 47 and 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Then in verse 2, Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord. And in verse 49, Mary says, holy is his name. In verse 4, Hannah says, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And Mary says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 5, Hannah says, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Verse 53, Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Kind of pretty similar, right? The parallels are not word for word, but they're clear. Mary's not quoting Hannah in the Old Testament. Instead, it seems to me that Mary is so familiar with the Old Testament that she breaks out in praise. As she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her lips are words of Scripture. Even though she didn't have a Bible app on her phone, she didn't have five plus English translations or Aramaic or Hebrew translations for her. Being a young woman, she probably loved the stories of the Old Testament women. Women of faith like Sarah and Deborah and Hannah and Ruth and Abigail. I'm pretty excited my newest grandchild in the womb. Her, her name is going to be Abigail. 
So we have a theme going in our family. We have Samuel, we have David, we have Jonathan, we have Abigail, all sort of in the, if you're familiar with David's story, they all kind of fall in there. I feel sorry for my granddaughter, Amelia. She's like the outcast. She doesn't fit in there. Anyway, Mary's Bible-saturated words should provide encouragement and admonition for both women and men, young and old, right? She was probably not older than 15, and yet her mind and heart were filled with the Scriptures. The Word of God was front and center in her heart and mind, as it should be in ours. And I dare say that, that it was this heart for God's Word that played an important part in her being chosen to raise Jesus. I know we have trouble thinking of Jesus being raised. Didn't He just come out knowing everything? You know, He came out with a, the Strong's Concordance rolling around in His brain already. Not so. I don't, I don't totally get this, but Luke says in chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I believe that Mary and Joseph played a part in this increase in wisdom and stature and favor. Specifically, they would have been the first ones to instruct Jesus in the Old Testament stories, commands, truths found in God's Word. And this too should say something to us. Certainly that we should instruct our children and grandchildren in the Word of God, but also, if we, like Mary want to be chosen by God to be used for His purposes, we, like Mary, will fill our hearts and minds with His Word. And His Word should should then be like Mary did, like it did for Mary, flow from our lips in songs of praise. So we've seen that young Mary had a love for God, had a love for God's Word. Now let's look more closely at her song. It breaks down nicely into three sections. First, in verses 46 and 47, is Mary's expression of what she feels in her heart. Second, in verses 48, and then the first part of 49, she mentions, she says, what God has done specifically for her as an individual. And then third, in the second half of verse 49, all the way through the end, verse 56, she spends most of the time describing the way God is. Actually, 55, then 56 is her departure from Elizabeth. This general character of God, this final part, accounts for why He's treated her the way He has in her lowliness and and thus leads her to rejoice and magnify the Lord. So let's look at these three sections, but in reverse order. I think the, the third section provides the basis for the two prior ones. Okay, So first, or third section, the holy God helps the lowly. Beginning in the second half of verse 49, Mary says, Holy is His name. Mary makes the general statement that God's name is holy. That is, God's nature, God's the essence of God is holiness. He's completely free of sin. And His ways are not our ways. He's set apart. He's unique, separate from and exalted above His creation. He's exalted above His creatures. He's exalted, separate from you and me. All His attributes are perfect. And they all come together in a perfect harmony called holiness. The Bible says uh, a number of times He is holy, holy, holy. 
And what Mary stresses in what follows is the way His holiness expresses itself. And her words are a warning to Theophilus and to us not to make the common mistake that because God is great, He's partial to great men and women. Or because God is exalted, He favors what is exalted among men. In fact, just the opposite is true. God's holiness has and will express itself by lifting up and having mercy on the humble and putting down the prideful. Humble, lowly Mary and Elizabeth have personally experienced His mercy and exaltation. And because of that, Mary's heart is filled with joy. Joy that God loves to have mercy on the humble. She mentions it four times in that second part. First, verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. Those who fear the holy God are those who who revere Him. Those who are in awe and respect for Him. Those who bow down before Him, recognizing His holiness, His greatness, and their lowliness. Praise God, it is those who fear Him that will receive His mercy. Verse 52, He has exalted those of humble estate. To be exalted, lifted up, used by the holy God, you must recognize, this will be a theme here, you must recognize your humble estate. To paraphrase Paul, you must recognize that God is the holy potter and you and I are the humble clay. Praise God. He exalts. He chooses. He uses the humble. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. The hungry, the poor, the needy who belong to the holy God will receive good things from Him. He will fill them up. Praise God. He will provide for those in need. And then in verses 54 and 55, we read this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Again, Mary had a clear understanding of Scripture. The Old Testament is basically the history of of God helping very needy, very lowly Israel. God spoke to Abraham and his offering, specifically those who served him, who served the Lord. He instructed them, corrected them, guided them, led them. Not because Israel deserved his help. Who are we, they would say, but because, the holy God, because of God's holy mercy. God was merciful to Israel. In these verses, Mary gives uh, what might be the best summary of of the Old Testament ever. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Can't think of a better summary. But let's briefly expand on that. For those that everything doesn't pop into your mind, let me just give you some, some examples. In his mercy, the holy God helped Israel by calling his servant Abraham out of all the peoples on the earth to be their father. He helped Israel by calling his servant Joseph to preserve them during a time of great famine. He helped Israel by calling his servant Moses to deliver them from their slavery and to give them his law. He helped Israel by calling his servant Joshua to lead them in the promised land. He helped Israel by calling his servants the judges. When Israel fell into sin and idolatry and were defeated and captured by their enemies, if they cried out for deliverance, God in His mercy would again and again and again raise up judges to help them, to rescue them. 
Also, he helped Israel by calling his servants, King David and a few other good kings, to lead them, to lead them as a nation in following the Lord. And finally, he helped Israel by calling his servants, the prophets, to correct and rebuke the people in their sinfulness. So that's an expanded uh, summary of Mary's summary of the Old Testament. And I think we could add that he helped Israel by calling his servant Elizabeth to bear John the Baptist, who would prepare the people for the Lord's coming. And finally, in his mercy, the holy God helped Israel and all peoples by calling his servant Mary to bear Jesus Christ, who would give his life as a ransom for many. So that's one side of how a holy God works. In His mercy, He has mercy. He helps those who are His, the lowly, the humble, including Israel, including Elizabeth, including Mary. The other side is that God is against the proud, the haughty. Mary mentions this three times. Let me just read them. Verse 51, He has shown strength with His arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, He has broken down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. It's clear from Mary's words and from the whole Bible, if you have ever read it, that God is not partial to the rich, the powerful, the proud. And and that makes sense, right? How could God be for the things that we people often substitute and seek after instead of Him? Vast numbers of people throughout history and today have perished because they choose to follow the path of pride and power and wealth. And not the path of humility that leads to God and His mercy. And this was, I think, especially important for Theophilus. I'm reading a a book on the life of Caesar Augustus. He's the guy that declared the census that brought... Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, and one thing's clear about the Romans, lots of pride, lots of power, lots of wealth, and that's what they were seeking. Lots of uh, deceit to get it, lots of wars and battles and killing and conquering to get pride and power and wealth. So Theophilus, as a Roman official, would have struggled. Isn't that what, you know... I'm supposed to, you know, be pro- have pride. I'm supposed to have power and wealth. That's what the gods, the gods of the Romans, that's what they looked upon as good. So there's a word of warning and salvation here for Theophilus and for us. Theophilus and anyone else who reads these words, look at what God is really like. He's not the least bit impressed by any of your power or your wealth or what brings you pride. He's not impressed with what you think you you might be doing to earn his favor, to gain salvation. He has mercy on those who fear him, those who humble themselves and turn from the path of pride, power, and wealth and turn to the path of humility, faith, and service to the Lord. This is the way God is, Theophilus. This is how uh, His holiness expresses itself. As James makes clear, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If If I were to say one key to entering the kingdom of God, it's humility. 
It's humility. It's your willingness to turn from your ways, to turn from what you think will earn salvation and turn to Christ alone, bowing before Him. Doesn't that ring true? That the holy God should magnify His greatness by lifting up the lowly. By lifting up those who admire His greatness. And by putting down the haughty who resent His greatness. Those who take pride in their own perceived greatness. So in the third section of Mary's Song of Praise, we see the general way God is. The way God's holiness expresses itself both to the lowly and the haughty. Put simply, God loves the lowly and He hates the haughty. So be warned, Theophilus and us, don't follow the path of pride, power, and wealth. Instead, follow the path of faith, humility, and service to the Lord. Now we move back to the second section, verses 48, 49, beginning, and we see the holy God blesses Mary. Mary is clearly part of the faithful, humble, lowly servant class, this group that receives God's mercy, and therefore she is blessed by God. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. This is so good. Mary simply sees in her own experience now an example of the way God is. I am a servant, and he sees me. He sees my humble estate, my humble life. Mary testifies to her own lowliness, and she glorifies God for looking upon her with favor and grace. Prophesying, really, that like Elizabeth, people for all time will call her blessed. Not because she is great, not because she is deserving, but because God, who is mighty, has done great things in and through and for her. What did God in His greatness do for Mary? He made her the mother of the Son of, of God, of God. Uh, come in human flesh. This is such a unique, unimaginable thing that God has done for her that all generations for all time will acknowledge Mary's blessedness. Not Mary's greatness, but her blessedness. She was blessed like no one else. Before her encounter with Gabriel, Mary accepted by faith what she learned from uh, the song of Hannah and all the Old Testament that God opposes the proud and blesses the lowly who look to Him for mercy. But now she's found, she's found it to be true in her own experience. Isn't that awesome? You ever had that experience, you know, you, you believe it's true and then it happens to you. And you go, oh my gosh, it, it is true. That's amazing. So what about you and me? Do you know by faith or even experience that God blesses the lowly, the humble? I, I certainly do. The ones who come to Him not to proclaim their greatness, but to look to Him for mercy. If not, I pray that today you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That God's Word has entered your heart and you've realized that your own, lowly, your own lowliness before Him will turn to mercy, will turn Him to mercy for you. And if so, if you do know that God blesses the lowly, 
Rejoice in your lowliness and receive his blessing. That's what Mary does. Mary rejoices in the holy God. So now we return to the beginning of Mary's song. Remember, she's just received confirmation from spirit-filled Elizabeth that the child she carries is the Lord God himself. And she responds by praising and rejoicing in the holy God. Verse 46, 47, one more time. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is a beautiful response to what God has done for her. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Remember, uh, magnify means to declare the greatness of. To, uh, you could think of it this way, to make big. You know, a magnifying glass makes things bigger. This time, in that case, bigger than they really are. In this case, just maybe, maybe big like they should be when it comes to God. But how does a soul magnify God? A mouth magnifies God uh, by declaring that God is magnificent, by speaking His praises. But, but no one hears a soul. No one but you and God. And I doubt that Mary means uh, this as this is uh, some silent prayer from her soul because somehow Luke had, has received it, written it down. It, it's been spoken So I think she means, when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, what she says next, at this moment her soul feels the greatness and holiness and mercy of God, and the feeling is primarily a feeling of joy. Because she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is so important for us to understand. Mary's magnifying God, declaring His greatness, giving Him glory by rejoicing in Him. Do you see what this means? Mary and we magnify the Lord. We declare God's greatness to those around us by rejoicing in Him. By having joy in the Lord. By being people who in word and deed express joy in what God has done is and is doing in our lives. We, like Mary, must recognize and rejoice in the fact that we are lowly, weak creatures. But God, by His grace and greatness, sees us, He chooses us, He saves us, and He uses us for His purposes. For Mary, His purpose was uh, to deliver and raise His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. But for you and me, His purpose is different. We are, uh, I believe, best way to express that is that we're ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says to the church in Corinth. We, by our words and deeds, are to glorify God by representing Jesus Christ in this fallen and lost world. We're to go forth and make disciples. So our purpose is different from Mary's, but God's method of selection is the same. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, but God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you want to be chosen by God? This is who you are. This is who you need to be. I would say this is who you are, and you need to recognize it. God chooses to use an old barren woman and a young virgin of no fame or fortune or power to bring, uh, to begin the implementation 
of his plan for the redemption of humanity. And to human thinking, uh, that would be foolish. These women are weak, lowly, despised by the world. And that's a good thing. Because the point is not their glory. Their point is not their, the point is not their glory. We like to give glory to people because then we can get some ourselves. I think that's maybe why Mary gets so much. The point is God's glory. God uses the things of this world, the, wor- the things that the world has no regard for, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That was true for Mary and Elizabeth, and that's true for you and me. If God chooses to use us for His purposes, don't think it's because you're awesome in some way. It's not. It's because He's awesome in every way and can use even you. Ash. Just kidding, He's awesome. No, He's not. Well, it's hard to say, right? And when we realize that, when God chooses to use us for His purposes, like Mary, our souls can magnify the Lord. When we realize it's all Him, oh man, did you see what I, oh wait, did you see what God did? What God was able to do through me? Let me magnify Him. Let me praise Him. Like Mary, our souls can magnify the Lord when we realize our humility and His greatness. We can declare His greatness by rejoicing in Him. Our lives can become a song of praise to the Lord. We can bring Him glory as we show who He is to the world around us. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for each one of us. That in our humble estates, God would choose for His glory to use us for His purposes. And in response, we would magnify the Lord. We would declare His greatness to the world around us. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we thank You for Your greatness, for Your power, for Your glory, for Your holiness, and that You as a holy God choose to set aside to pass by the proud, the wealthy, the powerful, and to use the lowly. Father, I pray that we would be lowly, that we would be lowly of heart, that we would realize without you, without the power of your Spirit, without Jesus Christ, we would be nothing. But with the Spirit, with Christ, with you working in and through us, we can accomplish great things, and that you might be glorified through those things. Lord, be with us. Help us to to fulfill the purpose you've called us to and in so doing realize that it's you at work, that you are great and we are humble in your presence. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's, let's stand together and magnify the Lord as we sing to him.